Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. I'm your host, Brenna Miller. And I'm your other host, Jessica Venus Nelson. The September 11th attacks spurred a global war that put terrorism in the forefront of American consciousness. Since then, the U.S.'s war on terror has become nearly ubiquitous and seemingly without end. American thought on terrorism persistently goes back to 9-11 and 2001, which has served as the premise for U.S. interventions all over the globe. But U.S. interest and the rhetoric on terrorism dates well back into at least the 1980s. So how did terrorism become a focal point of U.S. foreign policy? How did earlier precedents shape how the U.S. fights terrorism and its response to 9-11? And how do they continue to shape U.S. strategies on terrorism today, and are they effective? We've invited two scholars to discuss the historical context for today's war on terror and the Cold War precedents that help explain the U.S.'s approach to combating terrorism. On the phone, we have Dr. Philip Travis, an assistant professor of history at the State College of Florida, where he focuses on the Cold War, 20th century U.S. foreign policy, the war on terrorism, the Vietnam War, and the Second World War, and is the author of Reagan's War on Terrorism in Nicaragua. Thank you. I'm happy to be on the show. Also on the phone, we have Dr. Adrian Henney, a professor of political history at Distance Learning University, Switzerland, where he focuses on terrorism, intelligence history, and the Cold War. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for joining us today. So to start us off, what is the current state of the now 17-year-old war on terror? You know, I think it's ongoing. Um, the United States' uh, resolutions authorizing uh, military activity and the combat of terrorism, which began after September 11th, is now uh, some 17 years in the books and continues to be used to justify a myriad of interventions. Uh, so in that sense, it's very much still directly connected to the September 11th attacks. Yeah, uh, if I kick in here, I think uh, this is an important point. Um, this war on terror that was announced after 9-11 is still ongoing, and it's the still empowerment from Congress that is that is still used today to basically bring the, bring the United States military into armed conflicts on, uh, on various places on the globe. Well, what does the U.S. really hope to accomplish in the war on terror, and are the objectives clear? Any kind of precise objective, aside from you know, the broad objective of sort of stamping out cases of anti-American terrorism, it seems that uh, that this precise goal has changed quite a lot since the original war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. Um, indeed, you could argue that, I mean, the enacted resolution following September 11th was precisely um, written about al-Qaeda and those that perpetrated September 11th. But of course, Iraq, which was known at the time, had little to do with September 11th. And so it seems that a precise objective was really diverted from from the very beginning. And today we see um, the war on terrorism applied to multiple continents and pursuing groups that are not simply limited to al-Qaeda or 9-11, but a, a wider swath of radical groups. The, the label of the war on terrorism has been used over the, over the last 17 years by a, a range of actors for quite a big set of, of different strategic objectives. Probably it's the strength or the flexibility of the concept that uh, so many different uh, objectives can be taken under its umbrella. But if we take it literally, it would be a war on a particular form of violence. And uh, it's claimed to, to basically declare war on, on terrorist violence. And if we 
if we look at this at least uh, declared objective of this war, then we have to admit after 17 years that these strategic objectives have not been successfully reached at all. Yeah, and in as much as the strategic objective is targeting a type of violence, one has to really ask the question, is achieving a satisfactory conclusion to this in a reasonable time frame really possible? If it's not possible, how long, for example, does the international community accept the sort of loosely guided resolution that allows intervention almost you know, at will in multiple countries? Uh, to what extent do the American people accept certain curtailments of civil liberties in the interest of defending against terrorism? Or do we need a more precise definition, I think is one of the bigger questions in terms of objectives. I think this is very this is very important, and uh, I mean there are two there are two points here. One is is it even possible to to strategically defeat a form of violence that we as historians will probably say was was always with us in human societies? And the second I think major problem of the concept of the war on terrorism is is it possible to defeat such a form of violence through a militarized uh, strategy? Can like violence be rooted out through violence? And I think if we look at the record, it looks pretty bad. So there is the uh, remarkable uh, initiative of the University of Maryland, who has the uh, START database. And of course, it's always difficult to, to take uh, these exact numbers of global terrorist incidents. But they collected uh, one of the most acknowledged databases of terrorist violent acts. And they record about 650 violent acts in 2003. Globally, at the beginning of the war on terror, it increases to 8,000 in 2010. And it goes to about 15,000 in 2015, which is about 40 terrorist attacks a day globally in 2015. And I think it's fair to say that, the, uh, that in a lot of regional places, these military strategies to annihilate terrorist actors through uh, drone strikes, through military campaigns, have aggravated a lot of key drivers of regional conflict as well and have led to have aggravated other forms of, of political violence beyond just terrorism. Those statistics are just stunning. Well, the statistics tell the story, but, um, you know, even to like just the, the everyday sort of observer of, of international events, it's, it seems pretty apparent that um, the wars in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and the other various, you know, theaters of the war on terrorism have, it seems, exacerbated the problem as we have seen terrorist groups with links spread out over multiple continents. So... How do we define terrorism and has that changed over time? This was a kind of one of the key themes um, in my, my book. How precisely do we define it or how loosely we define it? Um, in the 1980s, the Reagan administration's Office of Counterterrorism actually resisted other elements within the Reagan administration who sought to define terrorism very broadly, to effectively define it in such a way that it might warrant a wider array of actions that could be taken against certain international opponents of the United States. This really became the precedent of the Reagan administration, but it was opposed by the leadership in the Office of Counterterrorism, individuals like Robert Oakley, um, who opposed this on the basis of the idea that if we define terrorism very broadly, then you open the door to you know, sort of a, a, an issue of credibility. Um, in the 1980s, for example, they redefined narco-trafficking, the State Department did, um, as a form of terrorism, narco-terrorism. And so the, the decision to kind of loosely and vaguely define the individuals you target as terrorists, I think, has some degree created a bit of a credibility gap for the United States. And I think if you go to 
the war in Iraq, you see that yet again, where the United States attacks Afghanistan uh, due to its alleged complicity in the 9-11 attack. But then it turns around and applies a preemptive policy of regime change, a conventional war against Iraq, a country that was um, at the time pretty widely accepted as having nothing to do with that. Yeah, I think this is a point where we as historians can kind of uh, show that what has been filtered as terrorist violence has varied widely over time. Another case example from the 80s and the 90s would be violence against abortion clinics that has been defined as terrorism at some points, particularly under the Clinton administration, and has not been defined as terrorism at other points, for example, in the, in the Reagan years. I think it's more than a question of definitions, though. Of course, the definition already filters the phenomenon to non-state actors and to, to non-state political violence. But there's, there's more to that than, than definitions. What is labeled and framed as, as terrorism through, through politicians, through the media, uh, and show that definitions are actually often pretty irrelevant. And one case in point would be Dylan Roof. There was a young American a guy who went into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and shot and killed nine, nine worshippers in the church. And he had very clear political motivations behind his act. He wanted to, as he himself wrote down uh, in the documents that were found at his home, wanted to incite the war between the races. He had a lot of pamphlets, flags, photographs of, of right-wing ideas at his home of white supremacist ideologies. He had his own website, The Last Rhodesian. He was part of a Southern Christian Confederate movement. So it had all the points that would fit all major definitions to be called a terrorist act. But that did not happen with Dylan Roof. And although he actually was a perfect case of, of terrorism, according to the FBI's uh, own definition, he was sentenced to death for, for murder and for hate crimes, but not he didn't get indicted or, or sentenced for terrorism. So my point is that at the end of the day, the definitions are pretty irre irrelevant of, of what we as a society label and filter as terrorism or, or terrorists. When did the modern problem of terrorism really emerge then? Are there ways that terrorism as we think of it today differ from much earlier acts of terrorism? You know, there is an important distinction, at least from the United States government standpoint, that should be made between international terrorism and domestic terrorism. International terrorism being um, terrorism that occurs across international boundaries and is um, usually somehow involved in the complicity of a state sponsor of terrorism along with other various groups. Um, in that respect, I think most historians would agree that sort of the modern problem of terrorism emerges most in the late 60s and the 1970s. And um, in the 1970s, probably the most um, widespread case would have, of course, been the PLO or general Palestinian groups um, and their conflict with Israel. And of course, the most infamous case being the Black September attack of 1972 in Munich, Germany. And there were numerous skyjackings and hijackings but for the issue of what the United States would define as international terrorism, the one interesting change that we find in the 1970s, by and large, terrorists associated with the Israel-Palestine conflict sought rudimentary exchanges. They sought to use political prisoners to gain negotiating leverage for the release of other prisoners. And so we have cases of hijackings in the 1970s where no one's killed. And then you transition into decades later, and particularly today, it is almost universally associated with the sort of shock mass killings and bombings that we associate with the war on terrorism. 
And how that develops is complex. But I, I think the U.S. policy approach of non-negotiation with terrorists probably plays into that. How many other countries have a similar policy of refusing to negotiate with terrorists? A lot of Western countries started to adopt at least a formal stance of, of not negotiating with terrorists. But I think we have to be a little bit careful of what's the stated uh, doctrine or position on, on uh, negotiations and, and what it's been done behind the scenes. So a lot of government throughout the decades, the 70s, the 80s, up until today, have negotiated with terrorist actors in, in, in specific crises. Even Reagan and his, his government have have engaged in negotiations. Uh, one example would be the, the 1985 hostage crisis when a plane of the Transworld Airline, TWA, was, was hijacked and brought to Lebanon. And, and Reagan was willing to, to go into negotiations with these hijackers and eventually put pressure on the Israeli government to, to release a great number of Palestinians from Israeli prisons. Another very infamous case is obviously the Iron Contra affairs, which was basically... Uh, initiated uh, by the fact that the Reagan government, government was willing to negotiate with terrorists and try to cut a deal with Iran so that Iran would pressure Hezbollah to, to release American citizens that were kidnapped in, in Beirut and held in Lebanon. So I think we have to be careful not to take that position too literally that the, the Western governments never negotiate with terrorists. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, that's a really excellent point to make. And um, the United States has done that. And uh, its negotiation with terrorists, um, as Adrian was pointing out, uh, you know, w while effective, was highly controversial for the Reagan administration. But, of course, the stated policy of the United States has been particularly dug in on the idea that it won't negotiate. And I think that the, the examples that Adrian is pointing out and myself, I think, might raise the question of just how hard line should we be with respects to diplomacy and with the idea of potentially having conversations that might result in peace. What's underlining is also a certain uh, stereotype on terrorists and what a terrorist is. And if we come from that notion that has been pushed very hard since 9-11, that a, a terrorist is basically like an unchanging virus that has a certain set of fixed traits and ideas that can't be changed and it can only be annihilated, then obviously negotiation is, is baseless. But if you assume that uh, terrorists are, of course, doing uh, very bad things and are applying tactics that we consider absolutely unacceptable, but that they're also humans that pursue a political idea and, and that potentially change and modify these ideas. And there are a lot of historical case studies, such as the IRA, where this has actually happened. We have the uh, example of the FARC guerrilla in, in Colombia. So if we assume that actors that apply terrorist violence can also change their tactics over time. If one engages with them in a, in a particular political way, then uh, there, there is a, a room for negotiations, obviously, that opens up. Well, speaking of stereotypes, and you guys have both mentioned some other areas already, but most Americans associate terrorism with the Middle East. Can you speak to some of the other areas of the world that laid the ground for present policies on terrorism? You know, in my own research, um, I've looked, of course, at Latin America, particularly uh, Nicaragua and Central America, as well as some research more broadly. And what we find is that historically terrorism is not, it's not a Middle Eastern phenomenon exclusively. It's not a radical Islamic uh, phenomenon exclusively. But the issue of terrorism um, has been something that has 
had many theaters. And in fact, Latin America for many years uh, in the 1980s was one of the foremost areas that the United States government perceived the threat of terrorism, as we saw the El Salvadoran Civil War, um, of course, the war against Nicaragua, uh, narco trafficking associated with groups like FARC in Colombia. And so I think the tendency today to assert it as an Islamic problem, I think, exacerbates a number of problematic stereotypes. I think this is a point that cannot be underscored enough. If you look at this as from a historian's perspective, there is nothing fundamentally or essentially uh, Islamic or Islamist in, in terrorist violence. Even, even if we look at the, the 1970s, as Phil said, where the, the attacks by Palestinian commandos and particularly the spectacular hijackings of airplanes. If we look at the leader of those Palestinian factions that committed those attacks, they were often not Muslims, but uh, Orthodox Christians. For example, Wadi uh, Haddad, the, probably the big mastermind of the hijacking wave, the turn of the 19, early 1970s, uh, leader uh, of the external operations of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, was a Christian. So was uh, George Habash, the leader of the PFOP. So were a lot of other Palestinian terror operators in Europe. So even if we look at it in that very narrow lens of the Middle Eastern conflict, historically, this hasn't been a phenomenon that has been in its essence in any way Islamic or derived from the Quran or from uh, Islamist ideology um, more, more specifically. It's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, one of the most high-profile pre-September 11th acts of international terrorism to occur in the United States was a bombing of a political opponent in Washington, D.C. In the, in the late 1970s that was perpetrated by those affiliates of the Chilean government in, in a program of, of international terrorism in an operation that some members of the State Department described as rightist and even like, like a far-right movement and from the perspective of some leaders, maybe even Christian um, in terms of their outlook and their pursuit of left, leftist opponents. Um, absolutely. I think another another big example, if we look at the domestic scene in the U.S., a big share of terrorist violence in the 1970s originated from uh, Cuban exiles and uh, yeah. anti-Astro organizations that were exploding bombs in, in Florida and Miami, but also in New York and in, in other places of the United States in high frequency in the 1970s were even responsible for the bombing in, uh, of a Cuban airliner that uh, killed more than 70 people as it exploded in mid-air in 1976. So the example of these Cuban exile anti-Castro terrorist groups would, would demonstrate that terrorism has historically neither been a left-wing nor a religious or, or even um, Islamic phenomenon. What effect did that have on America's formative period, you could say, for developing anti-terrorism policies if this arose primarily during the late Cold War? Well, you know, interestingly, during the during the Reagan administration, um, and actually, you would assert this with Henry Kissinger's State Departments as well. In the mid later seventies, there was a tendency to define terrorism as a leftist problem. The Reagan administration, particularly in the nineteen eighties, very rarely acknowledged um, the problem of rightist terrorism. Um, certainly, the Contras were really by the Reagan administration never referred to as terrorists. They were referred to as freedom fighters, which of course was a political sort of propaganda move. But the Reagan administration certainly, and I think Henry Kissinger's State Department, had a tendency to ultimately interpret terrorism and leftism as kind of related, 
the sort of moniker of the communist terrorist. And by the middle of the 1980s, as you see a softening of tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union led by Gorbachev, uh, the Reagan administration increasingly tended to define not only leftist states, but also some of the more revolutionary countries like Iran as part of an axis of international terrorism. And that kind of grew out of this problem of leftism in, in the Cold War. Yeah, just to, to uh, keep on with the, with the example of the contrast, there is a discussion in the New York Times actually after the Iron Contra scandal broke. Um, there was at least one or two articles that discussed whether or not the Contras should actually be, be considered terrorists as well. And there was a letter to the editor where one fellow citizen made the remarkable line, and that brings us back to, defi to the definitions, if the president of the United States ordered it, it's not terrorism. At very, very, very Nixonian. Yes, but yes, I think the, the emphasis on, on left-wing terrorism during, during the Reagan years can be, can be explained by the fact that terrorism is basically seen as an ideological tool, particularly the neoconservative policymakers that in great numbers came into the administration when Reagan was first elected in 1981, uh, recruited from the Committee on the Present Danger, from the Heritage Foundation uh, and neoconservative groups that were funded in the second half of the 1970s. And they got into uh, a very big number of the important policymaking positions in the National Security Council, in, in, uh, to a lesser degree in the State Department and the uh, Department of Defense. And a lot of these policymakers saw terrorism as, a, as an ideological tool to revive the Cold War, to come over this, uh, this period of, of peaceful coexistence and detente that had been a characteristic for the 1970s. And they were basically thinking, how can we make Americans fear communism again? A lot of these older concepts that were used in the 1950s in this first wave of anti-communism and fear of the Soviet threat we're not really working anymore in the 1980s. And, and one solution they came up with is this uh, ideological construct of terrorism that they would basically sell the idea that terrorism was this monolithic threat of left-wing groups and more or less centrally directed from, from the Soviet Union, from the KGB, against the Western democracies. So they integrated terrorism into a Cold War narrative to, to simplify it a little bit. To frame the Cold War again in, in moral categories as a fight of good versus evil to then uh, have a domestic argument for the Cold War politics that the Reagan government wanted to, to initiate. I think a lot of this too we have to remember this is all in the context of remembering of the Vietnam War. Um, it's of course the Reagan administration that uh, was almost obsessed with this idea of the Vietnam syndrome, the idea that somehow the failures in Vietnam had taken the political capital away from uh, the United States to be able to wage the Cold War in a way that it saw fit. And so the Reagan administration went to great lengths to try to find ways to pursue the Cold War in such a way that you know, would not connect with bad memories of Vietnam. Philip, I know that your expertise is largely on Latin America, and we just want to know if you could offer a few specific examples where what you're talking about, where this uh, shift from anti-leftism to anti-terrorism plays out. So in Latin America, I think one of the, one of the best examples, of course, is Nicaragua and by association, um, El Salvador. Um, so of course, yes. Nicaragua, the overthrow of the Somoja regime in 1979, left the United States in a difficult position. The Carter administration had sought to sort of play a balancing act between a potential Sandinista government 
or something that was closer to the old government, the Reagan administration, when it comes to power, pursues a war of harassment and then ultimately regime change on the government of Nicaragua, largely for its association with the militants in El Salvador. And so the United States largely constructed the revolutionaries in El Salvador, the FMLN, as a terrorist organization. Of course, it was really an insurgency. There's a very interesting memo in 1984 circulated by Robert McFarland. They redefine what an insurgency is and what a terrorist group was. And an insurgency was defined with such a rigid boundary that you almost have to wonder if any revolution could be an insurgency. They had to wear a uniform. They had to operate within a specific boundary, and they had to uh, behave within the norms of international law and combat. Uh, of course, the United States was simultaneously you know, supporting an insurgency that did not fit that moniker. But that definition was used to put the FMLN on the U.S. terrorist group list and labels the FMLN in El Salvador as as a terrorist army of nearly 13,000, one of the largest in the world, as opposed to a legitimate insurgency, and use that allegation to justify support for the El Salvadoran government, as well as, of course, the Contra War, an insurgent war against Nicaragua. Uh, the United States also you know, sought to redefine the, con- the concept of narco-trafficking and use the issue of narco-terrorism in its characterization of militants fighting the Colombian government. And of course, in the 1980s, there were a number of very significant events in uh, the Americas. In June of 1985, we had several American off-duty servicemen killed at an outdoor cafe in El Salvador. And this became the real basis for Ronald Reagan's so-called outlaw state speech and formed a lot of the basis for the Reagan administration's reclassification of state sponsorship of terrorism. And Cuba, likewise, for decades up to this point, was really regarded as the United States' number one uh, state sponsor of terrorism for its activities in not only aiding and uh, and supplying uh, militants in Central America, as well as eventually the government of Nicaragua, but of course, Africa and so forth. You know, as it carried on, the idea that Cuba remained on the state sponsorship of terrorism list uh, for years was probably not not right, but it was nonetheless regarded as the United States as the preeminent state sponsor of terrorism. Adrian, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think uh, El Salvador is certainly a uh, an ideal case in the in the early 1980s where we see this. Uh, connection of the leftist threat with the with the terrorist threat. I mean, one dimension is, as Phil said, that the uh, insurgency in El Salvador, the, the left wing insurgency and guerrilla groups were were framed as terrorist groups in the same way as nihilist leftist groups in Western Europe that were very different in character, such as the Red Army faction in, in Western Germany or the Red Brigades in Italy. And the second dimension uh, was that uh, the U.S. government tried to. Um, paint the picture that this left-wing insurgency in El Salvador was part of this international terrorist network or conspiracy that was led by the Soviet Union. And in a similar way that after 9-11, there was an attempt to to have the intelligence services find evidence of links between Saddam and Al-Qaeda to, to justify the war in Iraq. I've seen a lot of memoranda from the early Reagan years where they tasked the CIA to, to find links to what they called the International Terrorist Network and, uh, and the insurgency in El Salvador to have this connection to a larger uh, international terrorist threat and the, the regional or, or national conflict in, in El Salvador and to use this as a justification to, to on one side, 
support the government militarily, the very authoritarian government, but also to send special forces that would directly be involved in, in the conflict. So we're talking about terrorism as sort of a global phenomenon, um, which means that the strategy that you're talking about of defining state sponsors of terrorism and outlaw states is pretty wide ranging. What are the consequences then for ideas of international relations and sovereignty? I think when you when you look at terrorism, terrorism presents a new legal argument in terms of international law. Um, and this was the argument that because of the sort of malevolent threat, as well as the multi-state irregular nature of the threat that the United States somehow had a legal right and obligation, regardless of a country's sovereignty, to make a war of, of regime change. So you move from the containment policy of Vietnam to these more irregular types of conflicts that then become justified by a different legal argument that international terrorism requires that the United States take preemptive and preventative measures to address uh, this threat. And this was the, the argument that the Bush administration made following the September 11th terrorist attack. And of course, uh, we, we saw how that played out in subsequent policies. But that same legal argument uh, was put forth by um, legal experts working for the Reagan administration in the 1980s. With the case of Nicaragua, and the United States used that case against Nicaragua, the uh, International Court of Justice at The Hague, of course, sided with Nicaragua in that it was an illegal violation of Nicaragua's sovereignty, despite the legal arguments that the Reagan administration made, albeit the, the Reagan administration never really acknowledged those proceedings to begin with. Yeah, I think this is a key point that, that Phil raised, that the legal, but also particularly the ideological and, and public uh, justification, uh, legitimation for uh, military interventions for the war on terror that has been employed after 9-11 by the George W. Bush administration has been developed or has emerged during the, during the Reagan years. And uh, we see that as a result that most uh, counterterrorism policies that came to define the war on terror in the 9-11 area were actually uh, conceived during the first six years of the Reagan administration. That was uh, using uh, military intervention, using uh, special forces militarily to, to counter the terrorist threat. Also, there was the initiation of an armed drone program in 1986. Why did that then take 15 more years to actually become uh, to become a major factor after 9/11 only, and uh, one of the major reasons is that in in late 1986 the Iran Contra scandal broke, which is sometimes almost forgotten today. Probably uh, the biggest scandal in in, in American political history since uh, at least the post World War II uh, years. And it almost brought down the Reagan administration, and it led to to the resignation of a, uh, of a large number of those responsible for foreign and security policy uh, within the Reagan administrations. And almost all of the uh, proponents of the war on terror ideology had to leave the administration in, in late 1986 and late 1987. And terrorism was completely reframed for the last two years of the administration, starting in spring 1987. It was no longer conceived as a war or as an existential threat, but the new national security advisor, Frank Carlucci, and others um, were, were ordering that terrorism should be looked at as a crime and be dealt with through, through the law enforcement system and not through the military system. And uh, 
this basically abruptly stopped the development that was already in the first six years of the Reagan uh, administration going very uh, directly uh, into a counterterrorism policy that we would, uh, we would uh, subsume as the war on terror in, in post-9-11. How should that change our thinking about 9-11 and the U.S.'s response to it then as a continuation or a departure? Certainly, there is a, to a large degree, a continuation. Um, however, um, I don't think we should take that to the step of saying that there's not a fundamental shift occurring. I think when you look at the, um, the authorization for the use of military force, which has remained in place for 17 years, which is the military resolution that effectively allows the United States without any kind of formal war declaration to apply military force broadly in the world as it sees fit to combat terrorism. This is a, a very important uh, development that I think is, is very unique in its own right. I think it's also important to note that uh, you know the war in Iraq was a large-scale conventional war. Uh, when we're talking about counterterrorism in the 1980s, largely we're talking about the United States using maneuvers to harass a country like Libya and then doing some tit-for-tat strikes on Libya. We're talking about the United States sanctioning Nicaragua, harassing Nicaragua, trying to overthrow the government with insurgents. But I think when we look at the beginning of the Bush doctrine, it's built on the legal arguments of its predecessors. It's built on the history of the Cold War. But it nonetheless embodies uh, a very a very different shift in terms of the scale of U.S. intervention, not only with wars like Iraq and Afghanistan, but the nature of U.S. intervention throughout the globe, and uh, and also coming with certain domestic restrictions as well. So I think that the scale, the overtness of the post-September 11th world, despite being built on precedent, still makes it a very important and unique development. So thinking about the consequences of a military intervention in these cases, what alternatives are there that perhaps American foreign policymakers should take more seriously when they're thinking about the war on terror? Yeah, I mean, and this is not this is not an argument that there should that violence should never be used against uh, against terrorist actors or that uh, there is never a role to play for the military. But it's also a question of priorities and what are the major tools that you're using and and, and to which degree. And I think there is, as, as history shows, there are different approaches that can be very, very successful in dealing with, uh, with terrorist challenges. I mean, one thing is the law enforcement approach, which um, has been used very strongly and, very, uh, and actually very successfully in, in, in the United States during the 1990s, even against al-Qaeda and, and Islamist terrorism. There was a uh, first attack on the World Trade Center in 1993 by a, a, by a group that had some loose connections to, to what would later emerge as Al-Qaeda. There were other, um, other Al-Qaeda-related attacks in the 1990s, and those perpetrators were caught, sometimes brought, but were brought to the United States and were brought to civilian courts, to civilian judges, who sentenced them to prison sentences. Uh, if we compare this to what happened to 9-11, is that we have a total failure of the justice system, as until now, None of the 9-11, of those directly responsible for 9-11 have received the sentence, although uh, most of them have been caught. So there is, a, there is a, a law enforcement and justice line that could be strengthened and that has often proven very effective. And I think even more important and what has been uh, forgotten is that, that there are political approaches as well and that the military is often only effective if there is a, a political strategy that's underlying military action. 
That is obviously very acknowledged if we're talking about traditional threats. But apparently, if we talk about terrorist challenges, there seems to be the idea that this is, uh, can be dealt with only by the military by sending it out and kill one terrorist after the other until no one's standing. But I think as historians, we can, can pinpoint to a, lot of, to a lot of examples where political solutions and, 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 and at least the attempt to, to tackle the underlying problems and, and, and going into preventive strategies can be a very effective approach. If I may uh, interject for a moment, in the middle of Ronald Reagan's presidency, George H.W. Bush headed a task force to combat terrorism. And this was, uh, you know, uh, an administration-wide group that's job was to basically evaluate the terrorist threat and come up with the best approach to dealing with this. And interestingly, the, the leadership in the Office of Counterterrorism, which was Robert Oakley and Parker Borg particularly, when they got the report and they began revising it, were appalled by the fact that, that the leading actors in, this, in creating this report had biased the interest of using military force. That uh, report, which Paul, Robert Oakley, and Parker Borg, and more or less eventually led to both of their early exits because they believed that the real goal, as Adrian was correctly pointing out, is you know to use the legal system, to use cooperation with allies, diplomacy, and these types of measures, and to place military measures as really a last resort. If we look at the post-September 11th world, as Adrian pointed out early on with those statistics, there's really little evidence to suggest that a military-first approach has been very effective in solving this problem. Yes, and I mean, those statistics were only directly speaking on, on, the, on the terrorist violence, but that doesn't even take into consideration the huge amount of human, suffer of human suffering that has been caused and these are American soldiers, of course, that have died in, in um, significant numbers. There has also been a, a hundred thousands, uh, roughly hundred thousand of veterans from the war in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and in, in, in in Syria that have committed suicide since 2001. That is a huge number. All this attention, all this brain power that goes into conceiving these military strategies, all the money that it costs the trillions of dollars that have been spent since 2001, uh, cannot be used for investments in education, in health, uh, in the health system, in infrastructure that's crumbling in certain places in the country. And um, I think if we're all adding it up, it would be high time to, to make a reset now and, and rethink the, the militarized strategy that we pursue. All right. So here at the end, then, we just want to offer an opportunity for you guys to offer any final thoughts. I think probably the biggest conclusion I would, I would add would be to consider uh, the degree to which the United States today intervenes in the world and uh, that Americans need to be very thoughtful uh, as a democratic nation in evaluating how and when the United States is using military force in the world. These types of actions not only cost money, they cost tremendous amounts of lives and they've not demonstrated uh, much of a success rate in terms of ending terrorism. Even when you go back to the 1980s and you consider these the counter-terror opera, ter terror operations in, in, in Central America, you'll find that um, these were hardly stellar successes for the United States. And so the war on terrorism really signifies the emergence of a hyper-interventionist United States and one that is acting in such a way that really poses real challenges to the international sovereign state system. And that we need to really think about 
if we're going to consider this to be the new reality, or if we want to rein in this level of interventionism and pursue diplomatic and legal approaches to these types of problems. Adrian, thoughts to add? Yeah, maybe there are two points that could be taken out from historical studies of terrorism. Uh, And one would be that people should be aware that what we're facing today is from a historical perspective, really not something that new or unique and that we had qualitatively and quantitatively similar uh, instances and similar waves of terrorist violence in, uh, in the Western world. And uh, the, other, the other major point is I, I invite people to, to really think about what the, what the terrorist label uh, makes with, with themselves when they hear terrorism, when they see terrorism, when they think about terrorism. And what I'm hinting at is the strategic character that, uh, of knowledge on terrorism and how terrorism has been used as a power strategy to influence our thinking and to, to make us support certain certain policy options and uh, this is something that we can can really trace well through historical investigations because we can access government documents sometimes documents uh, from from non-governmental actors as well and we can evaluate how terrorism was used very deliberately as a as a strategy to to uh, to sell certain policies and in the particular case of the US government how a different periods in in more recent history, institutions within the U.S. government have very deliberately set up strategies to sell a narrative of terrorism as an existential threat, of terrorism terrorism as a monolithic threat, where it's claimed that all the different terrorists that appear in, in, in Europe, in the Middle East, in the U.S., in Asia, that they are somehow connected by... Um, and, and, and guided by central by central actors, whether that's Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan or ISIS in Iraq and Syria, or as it was in the 1980s with the Reagan administration, actually the KGB and the Kremlin and the Kremlin in Moscow, that there are recurring stereotypes and images and narratives surrounded by terrorism that sell it as this monolithic and existential threat that makes us. A, concur to certain policy options, whether that is military intervention or increased surveillance, torture, and other measures that we would not under normal circumstances agree to, but as a result of the terrorism label we are willing to to agree to. Well, we'll wrap it up on that note. Thank you to our two guests, Drs. Philip Travis and Adrian Henney. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events in Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center, and the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Brenna Miller and Jessica Venus Nelson. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website at origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.